it's intended uh, really for us to know how to live uh, in the world lightly, and while doing so, also be the light of the world. And we looked at Jewish and Christian identity, which I believe is critical to us surviving one of the two threats that we're talking about, which is assimilation and persecution. We have to have a, a solid primordial identity that's immune to assimilation, not to other gods. That's that's clearly a temptation, but really to secularism, which is the real problem for us. Our identity has to be tied to the belonging to the Lord and to one another, because in a culture like ours, which up to this point has had little or no persecution, the temptation of assimilation is more seductive rather than forced by coercion or persecution, although we may be seeing the shift in this culture uh, in the direction of coercion, if not outright persecution in the future. Now, I've talked about the diaspora mindset last week and said we have to have a mindset that says, yes, there are many ways to live life, there are many perspectives on life, but for us, or yet for us, this is the way that we should live. And we're to walk according to the commandments of God. In order to do that, we have to have a personal humility, and we have to be informed by the historic traditions of Judaism and Christianity. Now, when I say informed, I mean that that conversation helps us as we look at the scriptures, but remember the scriptures are our ultimate primary and uh, authority for, for what we do and what we believe. So today I want to talk about uh, this problem we have that many of us have talked about. I'm going to edit this a little bit because of the time. Uh, of going American instead of going Christian when we're struggling with issues. Um, this is something that Mike and I have talked about and Trevor and I have talked about. And some of you and I have talked about this thing inside us that wants us to affirm our rights as Americans in establishing our religious freedom to gather for worship. And this week, there was quite an experience as in the L.A. area, there were groups doing that to try to really push this. There was no humility in them. And uh, when somebody tried to say, this is maybe not the way we should be, they became pretty judgmental. It's amazing that arrogance and pride that is not a spiritual manifestation. So I want to talk about that and why we can't function like other Americans and just argue for our rights. Why that will ultimately lead to us being persecuted. So I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, the first six verses. I'm going to read those and then talk about that. So John says in 1 John 4, he says these words, um, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, 
and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I want to talk about this. This passage is really important. John suggests that the voices within the larger community of so-called believers is mixed. Not all of them are speaking truth. And John calls them, in this text, it's translated false prophets. But the, the, the Greek word there is pseudo-prophets. This idea of a facade of prophecy. They're not really prophets. And so he says that they have gone out into the world. Now that word, gone out there, seems to be a phrase that means they've really departed from the holy community. They're, they're claiming to be part of us, but they're not really part of us. Uh, John talks about this earlier in the book when he says, they went out from us, that it might be evident that they were not all of us. In other words, there is there is a group that comes out of the body, out of Judaism and out of Christianity, but their message is not the message of God, it's the message of the world. And while they claim to speak for God, they're actually anti-Messiah or anti-Christ. He gives us two ways to discern this. One is the idea of the incarnation. They must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, now, we've just proclaimed that truth by our observance of the conception, the incarnation, and the birth of Jesus as a Jew for the Jews and for us. Now, this is scientific and secular nonsense, this incarnation thing. But in fact, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And then he extended that redemption to those of us from the nations who were, as Paul describes, without hope and without God in the world. The second indicator that he uh, addresses about them being antichrist and not from God is how and what they speak. He says they are of the world, and they speak as being from the world. And the world hears them. This is critical. It's really important to understand that John is making a distinction. He says, we have the Spirit of God, and we are from God. And so the person who knows God listens to us. He's talking about the apostles. And, and the one who is not of God does not listen to us. Uh, and he says, here's how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is that discernment. The difference is important for us to understand. The one who uh, follows God will follow what the scriptures say according to the spirit. And the one who doesn't will quote the scriptures as Satan quotes the scriptures. But he will give a message that's really a worldly message. And we're supposed to have that discernment. The problem is... Uh, how do we have this discernment when so many are claiming to bring the message of God to people, but we really don't have it because we are spiritually immature 
And we are really already significantly assimilated. So I want to explain a little bit how this happens. And this is where I'm going to do some editing really quickly. Uh, I was going to give you the whole history of the transformation through the 1900s, from the early 1900s to the year 2000, of what took place both in our culture and in the church. In the church, we began to move into um, the urban centers, moving away from rural churches that were more community and relationally based. And as we did that, and we were the culture was more atomized, we began to develop what are called parachurches. Parachurch movement is a form of missionary activity among specialized groups based on age or occupation or a social stigma. So there were things like navigators who began to reach sailors and then moved to the campuses. Youth for Christ, which was the organization that I was part of, uh, would reach out to high schoolers. Campus Crusade would reach out to uh, college campuses. Jews for Jesus brought the gospel to Jews. Teen Challenge, which I was also a part of, ministered to gang members and then later to drug addicts. All of these ministries saw themselves as arms of the church reaching out to the lost with the idea that the lost would be reached and given basic discipleship. They would then come into the churches and continue their formation and be discipled and be mature and, and be able to uh, function the way we're supposed to. But it usually didn't happen. In fact, when I was in the parachurch movement, I never was in a church unless I was speaking. In other words, we were parasitical to the churches and not really uh, part uh, an integral part of the churches. Now, two changes were also going on in the culture. The culture was becoming more and more secularized, and there was a radical individualization. So as these parachurches began to move in the direction of reaching out to these groups, they were trying to reach out in a way that would be relevant to them. And what began to happen is that the family and the congregation began to be replaced by interest groups and individualized ministry. Discipleship within the groups was programmed and it was knowledge-based, all oh, lots of Bible studies, but not very much doing. And relational discipleship, which is integral to household and to congregation, faded away. Now, because there was in the 60s a strong youth movement and an anti-establishment mindset, that came from us baby boomers, churches began to copy the parachurches. In other words, they dropped the idea of being a community of faith and saw themselves as being kind of like the parachurches. They were going to have youth ministries and children's ministries and marriage ministries and women's ministries, all going after age-graded and interest-based groups. And the churches then began to transform themselves into parachurch ministries and focused mostly on outreach evangelism as the priority. So discipleship and spiritual maturity ebbed. And it became like a family that gives birth but doesn't raise the children. You know, you've got, uh, you got somebody giving birth every year, but they don't raise the kids. You would not call them good parents. You would not call that a good family. It's not a good church either. 
So ministry now had to be relevant and began pushing for seeker-focused, seeker-friendly kind of frameworks. So the congregations, which were judged by their numbers and their ministry, adjusted to draw a crowd. Entrepreneurial pastors started churches based on their personality with very little training and developed this Christian celebrity of music and teaching. And people began to think that God was speaking directly to them because God had an individual unique will for my life. All of this together begins a transformation of the two primary institutions, the religious household, which almost ceased to exist and is in a very weak condition at the present time. And then the congregations became more consumer-based and seeker-friendly. Now, the problem with seeker-friendly, salvation-focused ministry is the idea that discipleship just falls away. At best, discipleship becomes how to lead someone to the Lord. And while the culture was secularizing, it began to ignore Christianity and more recently has become hostile to Jews and Christians. Now that's a drastic contrast to the book of Acts where the apostles were not concerned with being relevant as they proclaimed the gospel and lived it. Now I don't mean that they ignored the culture in which they spoke. But they did not compromise the message to make it palatable to those they spoke to. We have done that so much that it's impossible to discern the spirits because everybody will claim that Jesus was incarnated and then the rest of the scriptures they're simply ignorant of or they're just following the latest fan. Where accommodation was made as addressing the Gentiles who were coming to faith outside of the Jewish community, the community still followed the apostolic teaching and the spirit of truth in scriptural application. And what established very quickly in the book of Acts was the household and the congregation as the context for all discipleship and reinforcement. And if evangelism took place, it took place in gatherings of Jews that had not yet heard the gospel, as Paul brought it to them, to the Jew first, and in the marketplace as the believers lived lightly and as light in the world. So you and I are really at a fork in the road. Um, we can follow the direction of churches for the last 70 years, and affirm our rights and our agenda in the public, as many of the churches are beginning to do now, or we can return to the biblical model of household, house-to-house gatherings, small congregational gatherings. Now, if our goal is numbers, the business model works, but it requires that we speak as the world speaks, because they won't listen to us speaking spiritual things. When we talk their language, we're really becoming more like them, and that's really assimilation. And if you look at most of the seeker-friendly churches, it's getting much more difficult to notice anything that is holy about them, anything that is righteous about them, because they are, for the most part, very accommodated to the world as it's moving in this radical individualism and secularism. So they don't transform the converts. They end up becoming like them. There's a dynamic here we need to be aware of, and that's really my point for this sermon, and I'll be done in just a moment. If we're not really of the world, but we try to use the world's methods, 
the world is going to reject us. Now, let me give you an example of this. If a group makes an argument for being accepted, they have a new sexuality or they have a new family form or they have a new identity, the world applauds that and runs to include them. But if we Christians begin to demonstrate for our rights, as some have done this week, and begin to argue for acceptance of our places, we're going to be uh, opposition. They don't hear us because we are not from the world. We are from God, and they're of the world. So we have to be prepared for the world to not like us and to not really like what we have to say and not like the way we're living our life. And that leads me to my second text, which is uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 22 to 26. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Not for the sake of your rights, because you are living and following me. Blessed are you then when men hate you and ostracize you, he says. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. The prophets were not going after the culture. They were going after God's people to encourage them to live the way God told them to live. And God's people wanted to live more like the world. They were always struggling with assimilation and they persecuted therefore the prophets. So it's really important that we keep this. Now, listen to what he says in verse 25, uh, verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, I've been watching, and lately we're seeing more and more people who are ministers and clergy who are being brought into the public media eye. And as they come into the media, I'm hearing less and less scripture, more and more psychology, and more and more of the world's message being put in Christian garb. And there is a real problem here. The message of God is not well received in the world. For a time, America allowed it and gave it lip service, but that's changing. So when we try to get the world to like us, we begin to compromise our calling. And in order for those who God is really calling out, we have to be out there, but we have to be out there authentically being biblical, not being Christian, American, nationalist, uh, 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 political. That also means that those who hate us because they hate him, will also see us in public. We have to be prepared for that. So here's the point. We can't use the methods of the world as Americans demanding our rights. Public dis demonstrations of us will not be treated the same way as the world will treat other people. We have to find a better way. And we need to know that if we go out there trying to be Americans fighting for our rights of 
freedom of religion, we are going to precipitate hostility and persecution against ourselves. Now, we may get that anyway, but we're supposed to get that for his namesake and not because we're being obnoxious. As I've often said, we're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, not dumb as an ox and like a bull in the china shop. So let me come to my conclusion. As an anthropologist and a behavioral scientist, I'm watching this culture transform into one that bears little resemblance to the founding of this uh, society. And I don't see it returning. And then as a pastor and theologian, I'm watching the people of God, both Jews and Christians, becoming more and more scattered, more disunified, and more stunted in our maturity. So I'm committed to do three things. To take the attitude, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and reinforce the household and biblical marriage and all those things that we've done. And to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as congregation, though that may require that we do it under the radar, more in a havara or house church context. And I want to, at the same time, not become isolated, but we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, a unity among all the remnant of God's people, wherever we find them in Judaism and Christianity. That, those are the three things that I think we have to focus on as we move uh, to a different direction. Up to now, I've been talking about the idea of assimilation, that we shouldn't get seduced into becoming conformed to this world but be transformed. And I will continue to talk about that, but I need to talk about the strategies of what we do as we become less and less tolerated and maybe even suffer persecution. And I'm going to move to that next time. Uh, so I'll continue to talk about the issue of assimilation, but I'm really going to talk more about the issue of us being seen as threatening, us being seen as old-fashioned, us being seen as um, teaching our kids terrible things because we believe that there is male and female, we believe that for us there is a certain kind of marriage, we believe for our household there are certain things as we do that. That is going to be resisted in the church and in the world. And so we have to be prepared for that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll take any questions that you may have.